0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Betting People with Joe O'Gorman. Joe will be familiar to many of you as one of the premium layers through a glorious period of greyhound racing. And I'm very, very happy to be joined by him today. Joe, thank you for giving me your time.
1: Thank you, William. Thank you for having me, it's a pleasure.
0: Not a bother at all. So first things first, tell us about your background. Um, Where did you grow up? And did you always want to become a layer?
1: um well um i was brought up in um a couple of pubs around the Watford area um mum and dad were both publicans um hence me being a lifelong Watford fan too um always went to school around there um first memory of going greyhound racing would have been at Watford dog track which obviously is no longer there i think that closed in the late 70s um and funny enough an er an early memory there um the late, great Dougie Tyler, one of the um, great layers back in the day at Wembley and Wolfenstone, numerous other tracks, he actually had a pitch at Watford Dog Track. So he would often come in for lunch before a bags meeting at Watford. So that's a early memory of mine. Um, and then from an early age going dog racing with dad, maybe at the, at the weekends when schooling wasn't important. And the same with the horse racing, really. Um, would spend a lot of time at my grandfather's, who was who lived in Chinkford. So he was like a mile or so from the track. So he, I'd often find myself down the dog with Granddad, really, from a very young age. And I suppose that's how that's how I I got into it. And obviously, at a, at a young age, I, I then advanced to tic-tacking for Dad down one end of the track, um, and I, I kind of fell into like a glorious eighties era then that it, then it was hard to to to, to keep away from and, and, and not fall in love with really
0: um and obviously that um golden period uh for much of it you were at stow and um, did you stand anywhere else um and i'm
1: guessing um, no i didn't actually one of my regrets not particularly not not particularly standing anywhere at that time that's obviously before i went on to harlow but yeah. dad, dad and granddad in Back in their day, it was a lot easier to attend Greyhound Tracks and, and, and get on the list of bookmakers. In, in my day, it was more of a, more of a closed shop. Um, that's because, obviously, it was still a boom time for crowds in those days, but it was a decline in crowds from the pre-betting shop days. I mean, um, even, even I believe, Watford Dogs had 20 bookies at one stage, um, and White City and places like that, the, the, the bookmakers would bet around the track. Um, so it was a lot easier for them to, to have pitches all over the place. But you know, Walthamstow took up so much of majority of our time with the three nights a week, and it, we then went from eight races to fourteen in, in over the years, and bags meetings as well involved. You know, it was a, it was a full time job just keeping up with the form and and the videos and 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 things along those lines really to to have time to go anywhere else.
0: And um... Just following up on that, uh, what was your best and worst night, do you think, as a bookmaker there?
1: Well, as a book, as a bookmaker, um, I mean, I was lucky enough when I was a young lad to be there for the for a trainers championship when the great Valley Regan Bob picked up our track champion ball in the top one. I think that's not what got me hooked, but it started to realise what a what a big deal it was then knowing the track champion so well, and then, hold on, there's this new superstar on the block. Then it went on to, like, great finals in the 80s and 90s. I mean, financially, my best nights are always probably the big finals nights, um, as in my best winning nights, um, because the turnover was greater. Um, obviously, with it being the, one of the biggest tracks in the country, it always had a great following. You'd always get the top greyhounds there so a lot of the finals nights like arc finals night would be a big one grand prix finals nights and then a little bit later on the um the racing post introduced um a racing post festival in i believe it finalized in november or december of the year and um, that was fantastic because you'd it would be about seven or six or seven different finals all finalizing on, on on one big night different distances you'd have a marathon you'd have a sprint you'd have bitches You'd have all the ages, you'd have multi-distances, it was it was fantastic. So there were so many anti-post events going on throughout that time, just to finalize in one night. They would probably be some of the best nights I have, especially when I guessed a few anti-post winners along the way.
0: And um just on great greyhound layers from that period, um I've feel obliged always to mention the fact that we did a Betting People interview with the legendary Tom Powell, the power firm. Um, what was your relationship with him like? And how do you think they changed um, on course ground betting markets with the amounts they were taking?
1: Well, back in back in their heyday, which would have been um, mid 80s, I suppose. Yeah, it was a very influential part of me because at that time, John was the bookmaker, of from Stowe, not Tom. Tom took over a few years later than that. Um, he was very flamboyant, very flash, very loud on the stall. And, you know, Dad and a few other the, of the other bookmakers were were, were kind of minnows in, in in comparison to him, even though it was a strong ring. You still had great layers like Buggy Tyler there, Ronnie Brazel,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Ronnie Bolton, Gordon Hutchinson down the other end, and, and and the mobile firm. So it was a really, really strong, strong ring. I mean, we didn't compete with any of the, the large layers there, but it was certainly um, one of the reasons why I think I wanted to become a bookie. Not because he's his blonde hair, just because I used to take him on and just, just did the showmanship of it all, really.
0: And um, you, you said earlier in the interview, and we did make uh, that sort of reference to it, uh, but you, when Walthamstow shut, sadly, um, you were offered a pitch at Harlow. Um, how did you find that move um, going from one track to another?
1: Well, I was... It was a daunting time in Wolfhamstone clothes because it's all—it's all I'd it's all really done since I was a kid, mm. and um, I didn't know where I was going to turn. Apart from spending a little bit more time at the races and maybe, then I would have had to in to, to buy pitch positions rather than inherit them. Um, it was quite a worrying time, but I was very lucky to be accepted into the Harlow ranks, and for a period, even though it was quite a short period, it was—it was—it was very, very good. It was a very close proximity to Stow anyway. And a lot of the punters there would probably um, go to both Harlow and Stow anyway. Um, a lot of the Stow trainers went on to Harlow. So a lot of the punters knew the dogs. It was a great little honeymoon period, but but sadly um, it, it, it kind of fell off a cliff quite quickly. Well, the turnover for me in the business did. Um, so I decided to probably leave after a couple of years um, and I was invited to go back um, a couple of years later um, and I'd share them with a gentleman called Gavin Patmore. Again, I enjoyed it, but turnover wasn't great and it, it, it wasn't long before we realised, you know, we're wasting our time a little bit here really for what turnover was, for what you could win and what 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 your liabilities were. But I learned an awful lot, of Hollow. I, I really wish I was a bookmaker there before... Hmm. Before I was at the before I was at the Stowe because um, it, it 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 was different going to like a grassroots track rather than like the biggest track in the country. You had to duck and dive a bit more. I had to gamble a little bit bigger at times. Um, you were led up the garden path a few times, if a bit of skulldugger going on. But you know, I had some good times there, and I, I quickly became I quickly became. Um, um, half a decent judge there, really, but a lot of the bookmakers were decent judges there. You, you had to be really, you know, if you're pricing up three or four of the races per night yourself, you would take it in turns or getting your heads together the price the you know, you, you, you can't afford to be wrong too often.
0: No, absolutely indeed. Um, just uh, as a sort of finishing question to this first part, but if you were uh, ever offered a opportunity at Greyhound Track, could you see yourself standing again?
1: Um, good, good question. Um, I, I, you could never say never. Um, I find it hard to turn down William, but you know it, it does take up a great deal of your life. It's very unsociable hours, you, especially with all the ex- extra meetings these places have on with bags racing and things like that. I mean, uh, at the moment, it's 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 a bit of a grey cloud over the on-course greyhound bookmakers because mm. it was in such decline they were getting paid to go in the end. Um, so the really a lot of the tracks sold themselves down the river a little bit and became a little bit more betting shop fodder. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, God, if someone said to me, right, you can go and bet a toaster throughout a couple of competitions and turn up Derby final tonight and bet about the favourite or go on the end or, or bet in a corporate area, God, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to have the opportunity. But I did, have the, I did have the best times. I just saw the decline coming in. With the exchanges coming into the ring, we managed to keep Beckfair out of, of Sun Harlows. It was just that transitional period. So um, yeah, I think I think I had the I think I had the best years
0: absolutely. I think it's a really interesting way to end part one of Betting People with you, Joe Gorman. Thanks very much for your time. Stay around for part two tomorrow. Hello and welcome to part two of Betting People with Joe Gorman. Now, in this part of the episode I want to get into some of the challenges facing um the betting industry as a whole um, but first of all what's your general view of the state of on-course bookmaking um, I think you'll be able to provide some perspective to this as a layer I think both of dogs and horses over the years well well
1: it's a bit hard to say moment. we haven't had the greatest of greatest <laughs> of years have we and obviously we're worried about getting back and um how the roadmap's going to pan out. Hopefully, there's no twists and turns and no shortcuts in this roadmap, and we can get back to some type of normal come July, um, come June or July. But before obviously the pandemic hit, I, I would say it was in on course, it was in a, a good state, really. I would say festivals were booming. Um, pitch prices we can buy and sell our pitches as as you may know, William, but a lot of your viewers don't. Um, the values of those were holding up still 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 quite well. Um, I don't know how they'll pan out in in the future. We'll have to wait and see. But yeah, I, I would say the festivals were holding up very well. Saturday crowds, particularly. Um, not all Saturdays though. Um, the winter game has always always been hard. Even back to my 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 father's and grandfather's generations when we were working together, that was well known. I think granddad would go to Benidorm for the whole of Jan and February, and come back for the festival, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. um one thing i will say is mid midweek midweek is hard you know if you haven't got um uh, a, a bigger week on that week or what's known as a festival week or even some music events or or free events that the tracks had a go at which were so successful in april so if anyone's listening we'd like to see those back um you know you put the tendencies down the people will come um so the attend the admission price sorry rather than the tendencies um and maybe that's a thing that, that will help midweek. You know, midweek is is, is is very, very hard. You you probably get too many bookmakers turn up midweek, but it is our profession. We'd like to go to work. Um, I suppose you're frightened of missing a, a decent winning day or, or, or what's happening in the world, really. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like to see track try and do something more mid-week, midweek. And maybe, William, it's a case of just there's too much racing. You know, poor quality yeah. racing week can lead to poorer crowds. Maybe now with a rejig of the fixture list, maybe round the corner um, because of the dates in the roadmap. Um, maybe it's a good time that they looked at the fixture list and maybe a little bit less could be a lot, lot more.
0: It's an interesting point. You may well come back to it a bit later. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, can you see things... Um, Changing with that, you know, most of the fixture list tweaks in recent years have actually seen slight increases in the amounts of meetings. And what are your plans personally for the future?
1: Um, well, I'm only 52 at the moment. I'd still like to be within the game until my retirement. I don't know if a lot of bookmakers feel the same now. We've all had a taste of retirement, haven't we, in the last year? Um, so I can see maybe uh, a few wanting to get out and maybe cash in on a couple of their positions. Um, rather than than see it out Um, we we buy our positions on on a lease deal basis that lease is running out Um, so hopefully I'll still be around for um, a a long while yet, Um, I don't think the fourth generation of our Gormans is likely to happen but um, um, yeah, I'd like to keep the name still on course for a good few
0: years yet and um... Just moving uh, quickly, or well, moving to a different um, area altogether, but one of the big changes in the future, um, which we're sort of experiencing now, at least the start of it, is the gambling review. What do you make of any proposed changes that you've heard, and um, have you submitted evidence to any of the consultations out of interest?
1: Well, obviously i will be keeping a keen eye on it, William. I, I didn't submit anything, no, because... I'm hoping, or the way it read to me, was it didn't really affect the on-course market um, that much. Um, obviously, from what I can see, the affordability checks and the figures that mentioned are, are ludicrous, aren't they? Um, mm.
0: Seems so low. Um, I'm, what I'm would sure you that that have? What would you I'm have sure. as a sensible limit? What would the sensible limit be to you?
1: I've got no idea really, William. Could it could it be worked along the way of 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 what people earn themselves? You know, obviously I can understand how you've got to protect the vulnerable there and people shouldn't be gambling what they can't afford, you know? So maybe that's something they could bring into it. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really affect, well, I it won't affect the on-course market. I mean, obviously there's one or two big bets flying around at the races, but they're not... They're not common practice. Um, it's usually one or two affluent owners, one yeah. or two larger gamblers. But if I was to tell you or other bigger bookmakers than myself, or even bookmakers with more prominent positions, you'd be quite surprised what our average bet is over the year. It's very, very low. You know, for all those big bets flying around, there's a lot more two fifties each way and, and five each ways. Trust me. So it, I don't think it's something that will come into bother us on course Um, and if if the punters can't get on on their telephones or can't get on online they can always come racing so maybe it it, it, maybe it could be a good thing for on for on course bookmakers that you know if the affordability checks are too low um, it may encourage people to come and have a midweek saturday afternoons and as long as they're gambling sensibly they've got nothing to worry about
0: um, some food for thought there. Um, exchanges aside, what has been the biggest change in bookmaking during your time in the game?
1: oh it's hard to put exchange it's hard to put exchanges aside. That is obviously the biggest. Um, my industry, the people listening to this, the, the bookmakers and some punters would know that boards on rails was a massive, massive game changer. So for the people that don't understand that, it's when the bookmakers in the like face the members' enclosure, were allowed to display boards and their odds rather than just call them out. I mean, even some bookies in those days on the rails didn't even take cash, it was all accounts. That was a massive game-changer. It changed the dynamic of the ring and where the footfall was, where the where where the bigger punters walked to and from. Um, and obviously technology is an obvious one that springs, that springs to mind, William. I mean, back in the day... In, in my day, it was a little bit of a skill to go out and, and, and be a bookmaker and uh, be a whiz with figures and add up and over round and look at a board and know what margin you had on it. But now, it's, we open a laptop and it's all, it's, it's all there for us. I mean, some of us don't look at a laptop for, for our overround. Some of us can look at a, a small run of field and just, just add it up quickly. Um, but some, some can't. So that, that has been the biggest change, the technology, the exchanges, um, boards on rails, um, LED boards and screens, you know, we used to have a man used to go around with a bucket and sponge, drop um, your wipe your chalk off.
0: Indeed, how things do change. Um, just uh, on rear racing going back, uh, I wondered because turnover is consistently good in bedding shops, but pre COVID, um, I think it might be unfair to say that there were less and less people going to the dogs. Um, how do you think we can ignite more interest in ground racing so that the balance between the two um, is put right in a sense, if I could say that?
1: Well, it's a- Big, big question. I mean, I imagine the, um, the brains, they'd prefer to ask someone like Barry Hearn, a great promoter, than, rather than myself. But, you know, possibly there's a way that they can reinvent themselves. The snooker managed it, the darts managed it. Um, it's a shame to see dog racing decline like that, but it, it's very hard, isn't it? Because to get the crowds in midweek anyway, as we touched upon earlier, um, it, 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 it's difficult. You know, it's a shame of growing tracks because it's a great night out. It's a cheap night out. Um, you, you see crowds at, at places like even even the Stowe Day, they were packed to the rafters before they closed down and even tracks tracks that have closed more recently um, still had huge crowds, but unfortunately they can't maintain it for the week. You know, you have to have something else going on there. I mean, Stowe itself had other things going on. I mean the great nightclub Charlie Chan's, for example, is another thing that probably helped that tick along away from away from racing. I mean, tracks getting bags contracts is, is huge for them, isn't it? You know, but then it's an easy, easy way for them to live off those those data monies and the, and what they're getting paid to satellite their pictures to betting shops rather than worry about getting crowds in and 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 fill, and fill their restaurants up. You know maybe they can look at something along the lines of of what racing do um, you know a lot of the evening meetings at the races without the the concerts on would be very quiet mm. um, maybe they have to diverse a little bit and 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 also change a little bit with with the times I mean a lot of people like going racing putting their best clothes on going out having a great day out yeah. you know, even though the dogs is uh, Still are still great and affordable maybe there could be one or two of those events in the middle that are just a little bit more upmarket and start att- attracting a different type of clientele
0: indeed and i think it's a really interesting place to end part two of this betting people interview with you joe gorman thanks joe stick around for part three tomorrow hello and welcome to part three of betting people with joe O'Gorman. now in this part we're gonna look at how Joe makes some of his opinions and and essentially how he does his job and hopefully get a few good explainers in there um, for you. So with that in mind, um, Joe, how do you go about pricing up a standard dog race?
1: Um, Well, even though I have done lots of compiling for other firms in the past, Coles and Blue Squares, especially help them out on their open race circuit with dogs um, and obviously I was a decent judge at the dogs and knew had a price the race up. How would I look at it? I mean, obviously it's great to have a knowledge of a local knowledge of those dogs. Anyway. Um, I've always been one, like a lot of good judges think the draw is very important. So there'd be lots of factors into pricing up um, a dog race. I think I, would what I used to go about it is I'd like to find the, the outsider first. Hmm. Work out if the outsider was really a six or seven to one chance or whether it was double figures then you may look at the favourite, fill filling in between, and then you think, no, the favourite still looks too big and lengthen a few of the others. Um, or you look at it and go, no, I don't think the public will back the favourite with that type of draw. Run poorly last few times out. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like looking at times, but I would because I think a lot of the general public do. So lots of ways to price up a, a, a dog race, but to do it well, you'd you, you have to know the dogs. It's a big advantage to know the dogs really well. Um, and as for pricing up a, a, a horse race, William, I, I don't really, myself, um, I don't even think we did back in the day. We'd follow a couple of old-time bookies that were very good judges. You'd send staff out to get their prices, someone you respected. You'd come back and you'd price up from there. Nowadays, as you know and the public know, we... We, we open our laptops and the, the markets have already been opened for 24, 48 hours on some, on, on some races. Um, so generally the, the, the bones have been picked out of it and it's there for us there. And then, I mean, we, we, we form opinions bookies, not all bookies do. Um, I do a little bit of a, a study up before I go, very basic based on some um, figures and, um, speed ratings that um the great colin webster got me into big um, rouse layer he introduced me to these figures and another couple of colleagues knew that i was interested and in, talked me through it so they've been a bit of a guide to me but rather than help me price up a race with really, it more than help it more than likely helps me try to guess which way the market's going to go which is mm. important for us on, which is important for us on course really
0: no, absolutely and just on um figures and your opinion you know you're somebody who plenty of people um tell me are has a very good sense of being judged is backs their own judgment but also somebody who's very good with um their figures H- how do you combine the two um and would you be in some situations more inclined to just back your gut? Um, and back your own opinions or would you be happier to let the figures dictate what you should be doing or is it changeable depending on the situation?
1: Yeah, that's the point, William. It is is very changeable depending on the situation. Um, If if you're midweek somewhere, like I mentioned before, it can be a bit quiet. You may want to try and make things happen um, by trying to enticing a few people in by pulling the favourite or second favourite or going against a couple of eggs, whatever your opinion may be.
0: Um, so, just following on from that, you're somebody who's known to be a good judge, um, but also somebody who uses figures heavily. Um, will you generally tend to lean to backing your opinion more often, or will you tend to try and follow the figures more often than not?
1: Um, on the busy days, William, we'd like to think that the figures would just take care of themselves, and you've got an overround on the board, and you've got a weight of turnover. Um, which is good enough to, to 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 really say it warrants paying the expenses for that day you know we 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 have we have such ridiculous expenses some days at some of these festival meetings. I mean we talked earlier about earlier about affordability checks. I mean I think I'll be giving myself a few affordability checks before I pull up the money for these rents and betting badges at places like Royal Ascot and, 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 and Cheltenham. Obviously it, it's it's worth paying because you do go to but you know they they, they, they they are increasing year in, year out and our turnover does go down. But to answer your uh, to answer your your question, um yeah I think on the quieter days um I'd probably you probably have got figures on the board, but it's very quiet. So you've got to try and make a few, uh, a few little things happen. Um, That's why sometimes midweek, like people should come racing. The betting ring can be very competitive still. You know, we're all, we're all chasing, chasing the buck and we all want to try and, 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 and and, and take money and, and keep, keep our turnover up to warrant the expenses for that day. Um, So it's a bit, it's, it's a bit of both really.
0: And um, just to go back down memory lane a bit, um, if you could go back to the start of your time as a layer, sort of knowing what you do now, would you do anything differently?
1: Um, yeah, good question. As as I mentioned earlier, I learned a lot at Harlow, so I think what what I learned there would probably. Because I didn't come from the strongest of laying backgrounds. I mean, my dad and granddad weren't known as, as, as big layers. They were known as, as, as fairing in the time. And dad was quite lucky to have the reputation of always being a main ring Walkenstow layer. Mm. So he wasn't particularly uh, an absolute fiddler, as, as, as they say. But I'd have liked to have been brave enough to stick by my opinion a little bit stronger um, when I had the chance to, when back in the day when turnover was great probably tried to hedge that a little bit less um, again it's probably ingrained a little, little bit into me by my father and, 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 and grandfather um, yeah I mean another thing I learned uh, another thing I learned from Harlow once was I um, it, it was reported in Muttley's column in the racing post one I think it used to come in the weekend issue that I'd been lucky enough to win two of the jackpots at Harlow. Um, I think it was a five grand pot and, and, and a four grand pot and um, and I think it was along the lines of saying "Oh, Joe was a judge at Walkham Sturridge, quickly learned to be a judge at Harlow but I remember when when I won the first pot of, of five grand I didn't realise Dave Barkley the, the owner of the track the promoter of the track was standing next to me and when when the dog went clear around the second or third bend I gave it a little bit of a holler and said Barkley get it ready like 50s will do and and um, I didn't know he was standing right next to me. So that didn't go down too well. And um, to teach me a lesson, um, a couple of races later, Barclay came into the ring and said, I've had it with you, bookmakers. There's no more hedging amongst yourselves. You know, you've got to be braver. You've got to take a bet. Well, we all took a bet anyway. It was a ridiculous statement. But um, I think two races later after that, I did lay a 2,000 to 1 a winner. Um, and Barclay was in the ring, or a few of his spies were checking that I didn't hedge it. So I quickly got my bum biting straight back, really. So that was another lesson. That was another lesson then. Don't scream on winners in front of the owner of the trap.
0: <laughs> and uh, speaking of some other lessons, um, we're coming to the end of this running people, and I'm sure it's been really beneficial to everybody who's watched it. Um, you've been in the game a long time. Are there any rules that you like to stick by? Um, whether it be mostly as a layer, or, or if you're dabbling in punting a little bit as well? Well, I don't really
1: punt heavily these days at all. It's, it's, it's more recreational. Back in the day, the dogs, when I had an edge, and you could get on, and um, I thought I knew a little bit more than the odds compilers Yeah, i might have a decent bet. Um, I think laying a lot of principles are, are, are still there. I think if you were punting, as we touched on before, you've got to gamble responsibly. Mm. Um, don't chase, don't chase your money. That can also um, roll over to the, to, to the bookmaking side of it. I've never really been one that, um, that gets on the chase and, and, and gambles and, um, for example, you look, you may be out of a day, and the first four favourites are one, and you feel you're getting out lightly. You may stand the fifth and sixth through a little bit more because you feel really I should be doing more than this if you look on paper. So, some of that comes into it. I've always been one that if I've fallen with a horse or a dog um, at top price, I always want to lay it on the way down. You know, a good friend of mine, another great layer of the dogs, Ronnie Bizzell, used to love that. He used to. Love overstanding a dog that he thought he was getting at the at the bottom price. Um, yeah. So and again that 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 rolls over if there was a tips that I was particularly following or horse I was following in some type of tracker that I'd put up. Um, if I missed the price, I wouldn't back it at particularly a lower price. You know, I missed the price, especially if you're punting in in what I would probably call level stakes. Um, and, and as As I said, you know, if I've laid a top price, I want to make sure I lay the bottom price, even though if I have to stand it for that little bit more, we call it averaging it out. So that's something that's been ingrained in me. So that's probably the only time I ever really have to overstand something is when I've fallen with it and I want to average it out.
0: I think that's a really good way to end what has been an absolutely brilliant betting people. Thank you very much for your time, Joey Gorman. Thank you, William. Thank you to Ben. Thank you to everyone. And thank you very much for watching. Stay tuned for another great guest next week.
1: Star Sports are the proud sponsors of the English Greyhound Derby. All part of our commitment to the sport from the home of Greyhound Racing Betting. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18
0: only.